Hi, my name is Nina Zhou. You're listening to the Chinatown Memory Podcast. I hope to bring you voices from interviews collected from my oral history master of arts thesis, which I'm exploring different aspects of Chinese Canadian history and life experience. The project features intergenerational voices from stories behind Toronto Chinatown. I want to share with you a story that is closely linked to Cantonese opera. For those interested in Chinese Canadian history, you might be familiar with it. Much of the early Chinese Canadian history is deeply entwined with that of Cantonese opera in this country. It was brought to Canada in the 1850s and had been a vital part in the cultural life for early Chinese immigrants since. It was originated in Guangdong Province, which is Canton. Southern China. It is characterized by high-pitched singing, dialogues, fancy costumes, martial arts, various Chinese stream instruments, drums, cymbals, etc. All those elements come to orchestrate a Chinese opera performance. My grandmother was a big fan of it. As a child, I knew that it was common to have a trip came over and perform in the village during traditional festivals. It was popular among the elders, but I wasn't really into it, so I kind of let it go in my memory as I grew up. In summer 2018, through a serendipitous opportunity, I was able to work on an archival and oral history research project at the University of Toronto Library. The research was based on Beatrice and Raymond Jay collection on Cantonese opera. Throughout the summer, we've been looking at the cassette tapes, manuscripts. Chinatown newspapers and photographs of the Jay family. Beaches and Raymond Jay were influential in 20th century Cantonese opera in Toronto and Vancouver. What you just heard is from a tape of Beatrice singing. I met their daughter Julie, who donated the whole collection to the university, and trying to know more about her late parents' legacy. In this episode, Julie speaks about her family with Cantonese opera, and shares some of her own experience as a Chinese Canadian. My maternal grandmother had eight children. 
and they were all born in Vancouver. And my mother was the third youngest and she was born in 1928 in Vancouver. And my father was born in 1916 in Vancouver. He was one of five children. He was the youngest. And when he was very young, his father died. And so his mother brought all the children back to China. And he was about two years old. So he actually grew up in Canton. And he only returned to Canada when he was a grown up, like maybe 19 or 20. So he did have a classical Chinese education in Canton. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why he was so knowledgeable about Chinese culture, Cantonese opera, you know, I mean, many, many, many aspects of Chinese culture. Like he was an excellent calligrapher. He could play many Chinese instruments very well obviously spoke perfect Cantonese, very little English when he came back because he had been in China his whole life, basically. Other, like he left when he was two. So even though he was born in Canada, it's more like he immigrated to Canada in terms of his, the time that he arrived. In 1950, my mother and one of her sisters decided to come to Toronto because they felt that there would be more opportunity here and I really think that they, one of the things they were trying to escape was the racism that was very common, anti-Chinese racism in Vancouver, which I think really scarred my mother and which was not nearly as blatant or overt in Ontario. For example, my mother and father grew up in, were in Vancouver at a time when Chinese people weren't you know, allowed in swimming pools or you know, just like many things that were actually very specific anti-Chinese laws. I think where, like my, my mother, when she was growing up, worked in sort of a fruit and vegetable store that her father had, like a small, you know, business. And just, I remember her saying that, like, she wasn't, sometimes customers wouldn't treat her well, well at all. And it was kind of like, it was like, okay to mistreat Chinese people, or that's how she felt at the time, I think. So she came to Toronto and I think did find that it was a much less racist and, you know, just that there were, as she said, more opportunities here. And my father came to Toronto to be with my mother. So then they got married soon after, the, after he came to Toronto. And what did they do to support the family while they were in Toronto? So my father worked in Chinese restaurants. And my mother initially worked, I think, in like a fruit and vegetable store that ones that other family or friends um, were operating. She did eventually get a job as a teaching assistant uh, for the Toronto Board of Education. So, which was a much better job and more, um, you know, you actually got benefits and things like that, like just a kind of a real job as opposed to what I would say is more a job that immigrants who don't have other choices work in, um, you know, fruit and vegetable stores and restaurants. So my father, though, worked in restaurants his whole life. He, um, I guess, for many, many years was the maitre d' at Lychee Gardens, which was a sort of upscale Chinese restaurant in Toronto that catered, I would say, mainly to non-Chinese people. And so, I mean, being the maitre d' was kind of a, one of the better jobs, I guess. He'd also worked as a manager of a Chinese restaurant before that. 
Julie's parents were both members of the Tsinghua Music Society in Vancouver, where Beatrice started performing as a child. Julie's recent discovery further speaks to her mother's interesting diversion from Cantonese opera, in a way to gain acceptance in the mainstream by connecting to the Hollywood actress Shirley Temple as an exotic Chinese version. So, in fact. I've discovered more about my parents since my mother died three years ago because I've been going through all of their material. Karen Tam, who is an artist curator, is doing a show in Vancouver at the Griffin Gallery, which is called something like "Whose Chinatown Is It," which is about perspectives on Chinatown. And so she is using some of my parents' photos, but she did an internet search through like newspapers of the times in Vancouver. From like the 1930s and 40s, I didn't even know that you could like search those online. So she actually did find articles and references to my mother, who was started performing as a small child. So my mother's performing started maybe when she was like six or something, like very very young. So she was growing up in Vancouver and going to school in English. So she was very much growing up in both cultures. You know, and more English than Chinese. So a lot of her performance was not related to Chinese stuff at all. Like it was,、um, she was called the Chinese Shirley Temple. I've thrown away my toys, even my drum and train. So Shirley Temple was a very famous American actress at the time. Really, I think the same age as my mother. And so my mother would have her hair done up in ringlets and dress up in the same outfits that Shirley Temple was in in movies, and then was performing like tap dancing and singing and doing the same numbers as Shirley Temple. But then I think, even from around the same time or shortly after that, I have pictures of my mother in doing Cantonese opera, and including some. I think one from when my mother was maybe twelve, which has my father in it, who was actually twelve years older than her, so he was a grown man. But that they were together in different productions、um, that I have like photographs of. So because my father came to Canada with that whole like Chinese cultural education,、um, and there was a pretty lively and large Cantonese community in Vancouver. And opera was really big. Like Cantonese opera was what every Chinese person went to see. So there was a large audience for it. So they were very involved. Like from that,、um, in fact, apparently there's even reference still to my mother on some of the websites of the the Cantonese Opera Music Society that she was involved in, even though she left in 1950. <laughs> After moving to Toronto, they helped found the Yethoi Cantonese Music Club. They were very involved in setting up the Yethoi Cantonese Music Club, and so they performed. And you know, sort of, my father was always like teaching people music and how to act, and and so they were among a group of very active performers and musicians from the 1950s till. Probably about the early 1990s, and then at that point they were getting older, and then they weren't that involved anymore. Located at 111 Dundas Street, it was the place that lived long in Julie's childhood memory. So I remember going there a lot as a child because Chinese 
parents didn't believe in hiring babysitters or just maybe we didn't have a lot of money, which certainly was true. So I would always go with them and while they were practicing late at night, like, and I would be just expected to sort of entertain myself or fall asleep and while they were like practicing. So I spent many, many evenings at this Yithoi. This is a snippet of Julie's parents performing Cantonese opera together. Before giving the collection to the library, Julie has digitized the tapes for her own record. As a child, she also had the experience in performing with her parents, though she wasn't sure if there's a recording of herself singing. Well, it's just my mother and father. I mean, my mother's spoken Cantonese was not bad, and of course she had my father to coach her. The more interesting question is how I managed <laughs> to do anything. So I guess, I mean, I have no idea. I don't think there are any tapes of me singing. I think that's a good question. I wonder if there are any tapes of me singing. And her perception of Cantonese opera has been changing over time. As a child, it was just all around me. So it was just kind of normal part of life. It's like the wallpaper in the room, you don't notice it, it's sort of the wallpaper of your life. But then I, I would say now, looking back and reflecting on it, I see what a strong influence it was and how vibrant the Cantonese opera was. Certainly when I was a child, like I remember I performed in some of these Cantonese operas myself. So we, we would rent Ryerson Theatre and that theatre still exists today. It's a huge theater. It has 700 seats. So I'm sort of shocked when I go there and I discover, and I think, wow, I was performing on this stage when I was like six years old. I couldn't believe it because it's quite a big and intimidating space. But I remember it was always full. Like when we did the performances, that like all the seats would be sold. And the performances were really popular. Like people really liked them. So. It was very much um, part of like Chinese, the sort of one of the highlights I think of Chinese cultural life is when these opera performances were put on and people would look forward to going to them and, and certainly performing in them was a big highlight for my parents. And I enjoyed like the costumes and, you know, just the, some of the music, some of the music is very loud and the singing is very high pitched so it's not like easy listening music you know like it's it's not the most relaxing thing to listen to there's other music that i have like tapes of my parents which is much nicer if you're just looking for like nice music to listen to um, but the drama of the operas was was always you know really fun and um, something that i i remember as a child uh, yeah, and I guess now in, in context, I realize how important it was for maintaining sort of Chinese cultural identity at the time. What was also interesting was just that my parents, although it was a huge thing for them and they were, you know, loved performing and I think enjoyed 
kind of my mom, I think, enjoyed being in the limelight. And, and that was kind of an, a big thing for her. But she always would sort of say like, oh, well, it's just like, you know, Chinese community stuff. Like it's not part of like mainstream culture or um, like success in the way that um, I think she would measure success at that time as if we, if, if, if I accomplished something that the mainstream society considered really good, you know, that that would be really important. So that was, it was just sort of a, an interesting message that I kind of internalized that while the Chinese opera was something that was really important to them, it wasn't necessarily something that they felt was as important as being accepted in mainstream Canadian society. So when I was 12, I decided I didn't want to be involved in Cantonese opera anymore. And my parents were fine with that because they felt that, well, you know, I should concentrate on my studies. I was actually going into high school at that time. So I was going into grade nine and um, they wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer, um, which I, I am a lawyer. So like it worked or whatever, <laughs> like that, that parental um, pressure or messaging kind of worked and they just said that's okay you know you you go you have to go and you know become a successful Canadian so so there was sort of like a message that yes this is important to us but it's not you don't have to do it it's not that important kind of yeah just in terms of things my parents did I mean I think my mother I've got pictures of her performing at the Royal Ontario Museum and at Ontario Place so like at events that were not specifically for the Chinese community. And I think in a way that those are things that she was really proud of because it was like at a big space, a public gathering that was not specifically intended for a Chinese audience, but which was like showcasing Chinese music and like playing instruments. And so sh sort of showcasing Chinese culture in a way that was accepted and appreciated by non-Chinese society. So I would say probably for her that those were like some of the highlights. I mean, of course, she also loved performing for the Chinese community in, in terms of like Cantonese opera and stuff. But I would say that a lot of the things that she did kind of that went beyond that were things that she was very proud of. Did you go to mainstream public school? And how was school at the time? Yes, I went to Jarvis Collegiate, which is one of the high school that has quite a good reputation for academics in the public system. So before that, I had actually gone to like a, the school you go to when you're younger, like Rosedale Public School was like grades one to six. So because we grew up in Rosedale, which is a very sort of well-off area but so I was the only Chinese student in the whole school. Um, there was one Japanese family that had two children in the school and no other racialized minorities in the whole school. So it was extremely white and also extremely wealthy whereas we were actually not you know really didn't have much money and so everybody around me had way more money we just happened to buy a house that was kind of like at the edge of this really rich area. And that's where I ended up going to school. So that was also kind of difficult in some ways, because I would say that having nobody around me who was Chinese 
in, in my life at all. And then doing this like Chinese opera thing on the side made it seem even more like um, a non-mainstream activity, you know, just some weird thing that my family did. So I think that that was, it would have been better if we, if I had been in a school that actually had like Chinese kids at it. So it was only when I went to high school, which was Jarvis Collegiate, that there, there actually were Chinese kids at the school. That was the first time that I met other Chinese children in the context of school. Apart from school, what do you remember about Chinatown at that time? Chinatown, like often my mom and I would drive down just to pick up my father or drive him to work. And then we would always go like sh grocery shopping there, you know, once a week and sometimes out for like dim sum or a Chinese meal. And my father knew everybody in Chinatown in those days. Like it was a very small area and much smaller Chinese population than what we have now. And he was a very outgoing person. So, and because he worked in the restaurant business, he would come across many people. Plus, um, through Cantonese opera, he knew some stuff. Plus, he was also very involved in, like, we have this, I think they're called, like, tongs in English, like a surname society. Like, there are five surnames that start with the same character, like, so our Chinese name, and then four other very similar Chinese names were in one society. So because it, Jay is not a common name, we had to group with four others. Whereas like Wong you could, or the Chan, you know, they have their own society. But we had this five surname club is what my mother would call it. So my father was actually at one time the president of that club. So he also knew many, many people through that. Basically, we would walk down the streets and he would say hello or talk to almost every single person we saw. So... That's obviously really different now. And he also was somebody who had like an incredible memory for the names and faces of people. So even if somebody had, he'd only met them once five years ago, he would say, oh, hi, I think you were the waiter when we had, um, we were on a train from Winnipeg to Toronto and weren't you the waiter in that car? And the guy would say, yeah, that's amazing. You remember. So like the, my dad was like that. So Chinatown was a very social and very like place where you know everyone kind of like that was the, the feeling. I also worked for um, one summer at this, um, we had a one summer, Elizabeth Street was closed off and they had like a, a pedestrian mall. And so when I was 14, I worked at, in the mall, like in a little booth selling like Chinese curios and stuff. So that was, a, yeah, an unusual time that, that they, I think that's the only year that they closed it off and had that mall. Well, I mean, of course, many memories of being at the music club and sometimes often my, just being with my parents, but also like doing rehearsals for Chinese opera. And then sometimes just being in Chinatown when there was some, like maybe it would be Chinese New Year's or there'd be some big event, but there would be like lion dances and firecrackers going off. So like just that kind of atmosphere, um, sometimes some martial arts demonstrations in the streets or like small outdoor. I think the, t the year that we had the street mall, that there were some outdoor performances as well that my mother and father were involved in.
Chinatown is totally different than in the past, apparently. But to what extent it is? It was all centered in one location around Elizabeth Street and Dundas Street. So then it moved, maybe in like the 1970s, to more Spadina and Dundas. And of course, now there's Chinatowns in many locations. But the other changes, I mean, now. We don't know all the people when we walk down like the street. Like just, there's so many more people, and the Chinese here are so much more diverse. Before it was always people who spoke Cantonese, many from the same area, like the sort of province of Canton and these like four villages, like Sayup, and they would some people would speak this dialect, this Say Sayup dialect. So. Now it's a very feels way more international, whereas then it was very uniform, and it was like you saw these people who were like from your own village or nearby, and so that you could trace your connection, the real close family connection in in some cases. So it's changed a lot, and much more commercial now. I would say, like not that there weren't stores and everything. But before it would be more like if you went into a store, you always knew the person, and you'd be like having a conversation with the person. You know, it would be oh, you know, hi, how are you? And then this whole long catch up about what your family was doing and everything. Whereas now, I don't know any of the people in the stores if I go in. So, I mean, Elizabeth Street is still there as a street, but so many of the buildings have been like completely knocked down. And then the building that. The music club is in was knocked down as well, so it's not even recognizable. Like, you know, it's this big glassy thing. So I am hoping to get a plaque put up, like a historical plaque, on the sidewalk in the location where the Cantonese music club was, uh, just be because that would be one of the few ways that people would even know what was there before. How these memories shaped who you are, and does it have any impact on your career path? I don't know if the memories specifically affected my career path. Oh, so my father, just another kind of thing. So he was also not only very extroverted, but quite articulate, well-spoken, spoke good Cantonese, like not just some dialect, because he had like been educated in Canton. Whereas the people like my mother, they grew up in Canada. My mother's Cantonese wasn't that good. She only learned from like hearing her parents. She never, you know, learned. She couldn't really write, or she could write maybe like a couple hundred words, but not like a lot. So my father was often asked to give speeches at big events, or like be the MC at events, like if somebody was having like a birthday party or you know some special event, then. So at these banquets, often at the beginning, I remember because I would be some at some, not all, but some of these banquets I would be at, and he would be welcoming people, and then he would say, and、uh, you know we have these special guests here, and then he would say because, and this is what everyone did, it wasn't just my father, but you know if there was some like you know like say a politician or something, but he would also say, and we have like doctor so and so, and this person who's like a lawyer, because. Those were really big things in those days. Like it's not like it is now in Toronto, where every other doctor you see is Chinese. 
at that time, there were only two Chinese doctors in Toronto that, I, that we know of. It, it was a big sign of success if you kind of made it to be like a doctor or lawyer, so much so that you would be like introduced as like some special like dignitary at one of these banquets. So I'm sure that those were like subliminal messages that I absorbed as a child that it was, that was what you want. And of course, my parents very directly told me that that's what you want to do. You want to be a doctor or a lawyer because that means that you have succeeded. And that was, I think, the goal of most Chinese immigrants. And even though my parents were born here, it was still, you know, very much that you want the next generation to have success, not just success within the Chinese community, but in the mainstream culture. Julie went to law school. Since 1980s, she had worked for the Ontario government, the Yukon government in Whitehorse, as well as the federal government of Canada for many years, respectively. Having known her parents' immigration stories in an anti-Asian context, I was curious about the challenges that she might face in her career as a lawyer. Well, I think that at the time, I was not that aware of like racism or just when you're just, it's just, this is life. Like you, you're not reflecting on it or seeing your life in an uh, objectively or dispassionately. Like for example, when I was in one of my maybe second or third jobs with the Ontario government was I was legal counsel to the ministry of correctional services, which means like defending the government when, inmates, let's say, were, were killed in jail. And so we had to have an inquest or defending the government if there was some allegation that somebody was being improperly held in jail. So it was a fairly kind of like a paramilitary environment, like the whole corrections is part of that kind of solicitor general corrections world. And so um, at the time, I remember that Olivia Chow, who you probably know now because she you know, was a member of parliament, um, etc. She and I were together at Jarvis. Anyway, so, and I knew her from a number of other things as well. We've been involved in political campaigns. So she interviewed me for the local Chinese newspaper. And it was kind of about like the theme of the article, which I didn't really understand at the time, was kind of about like, pioneering, you know, Chinese Canadian lawyer. And I remember her asking a question like, so are you like the first Chinese Canadian woman or whatever to like have this type of job or be in this position? And I was sort of surprised and I, and I hadn't really thought about it. And I said, well, yeah, I guess so. Like, I mean, it hadn't, it wasn't sort of something I was thinking about at the time, but it was something like Olivia was much more aware of these issues from much earlier on than, than I was. I think now I'm much more kind of woke and aware and sensitive to all of these issues than I was then. But I do realize in retrospect that many of the things that I did, it certainly I was the first Chinese Canadian to do any of those, you know, things at the time. But um, that wasn't, like, I guess I didn't think that that was that significant. I just thought that, you know, you're judged as an individual, not as kind of a representative of the group that you come from. I mean, also in retrospect, I would say that there were lots of issues or situations where there was some 
maybe not overt, but sort of subtle discrimination that I just was not specifically aware of at the time. And like it, it was, none of them were really like traumatic incidents or anything like that. I don't think it really held me back, but there are certainly times. And I think this maybe in the same way that there are now where a woman, especially a woman who's a member of a racialized minority and perhaps even more so Asian women, because there's a sort of stereotype that you're going to be like submissive, easy to get along with, or, you know, like compliant. So it's actually hard to be in a position like being a lawyer where you have to be like quite assertive so that you're judged based on people's preconceptions of the way they think an Asian woman is supposed to behave. And that that means that they would judge you more negatively than if, you know, a man had said the same thing or like a white man had said the same thing. So I'm aware of these issues now. I, I wouldn't say that they particularly held me back, but it certainly was, you know, even at the time when I was a young lawyer, certainly unusual to be a lawyer as a Chinese Canadian woman that would have been in the early 1980s. So I would say that I probably have not faced very much, certainly no, not like overt discrimination. That is partly because I was born and educated in Canada. Like I do think that there's always a lot of challenges for people whose first language is not English, who are trying to be, to work in professional careers in Canada. You know, that that's always difficult. Like if you don't speak English perfectly, or if you have an accent, then people can, you know, kind of hold, hold that against you in a certain way, or just say, well, you're not that, you're not that qualified, or you're, you're not good at communicating, or you're not fitting in or something like that. So I, I didn't have that disadvantage facing me. So I, w I would say that that made it a lot easier. Yeah, I don't think it's been that difficult for me. I, I guess the other thing is that I always chose, and, or ended up and chose to work in government and I think governments as employers really do make an effort to, um, you know, not be racist or discriminatory or sexist and have in place a number of programs to really try to ensure equal opportunity. And so that also made things easier. I think it would have been harder in the private sector. I have great respect for Julie and her parents whose stories were so inspiring. To conclude with this episode, I would like to rewind back to the beginning where I started with the Beatrice and Raymond J collection because that's how we connected. In reflection, I realized that how significant it was in shaping my life as well. Given this research opportunity, I went into the path of oral history and now I'm on the way to a master degree in this field. Through collecting stories and memories, we are able to look at one's life vis-a-vis -a, -vis a greater historical scale. And the other way around, we can access history by seeing how joy and sorrow, struggle and hope are embedded in personal life. Well, I think part of it was that I'm, you know, I met Yiming, who you know, and um, she was somebody who I had asked. She and Ray were two young Chinese students who were, at the time, they were both students who showed up in a, at an event where I asked people if, if there were any people who would help me go through my parents' material, and they both volunteered. And they really persuaded me of that this material was valuable, which I hadn't 
realize that anyone would really be interested. And then they, um, Yi Ming introduced me to key people at U of T, including like Jack Leung, who was the head of the library. And they, you know, asked if I would donate the material. So when I realized that there was like interest in it, I was like very enthusiastic about donating the material. And it's given me a whole new insight into my parents who I now understand. And I can actually see them in a more objective way as historical figures rather than just in their relationship to me as my parents. So it's been really good to sort of see the trajectory of their lives in the times that they lived and the difficulties that they faced, especially in Vancouver in those early days where there was so much anti-Chinese sentiment and how they um, managed to um, like just maintain their culture and, um, and their dignity despite having had very difficult early experiences, I guess I would say. And, and certainly in my mother's case, having grown up very, very poor um, in the depression in a place where um, it was very, very hard to make a decent living as a Chinese person. So to have got through that and, um, you know, sort of still managed to celebrate their culture and to keep it alive. I see that now as a great accomplishment. <laughs>